Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the show that explores our place in time. And what is time? How do we know time except through the body? So it's with delight that this week I get around to a long overdue topic on this show. Rhythms in the body, circadian rhythms, lunar cycles, and sleep with our guest, Jessa Gamble, the editor of The Last Word on Nothing Science blog, and the author of The Siesta and the Midnight Sun, a cool book about how we are literally made out of clocks at the molecular level. If we are to measure our time by the quality, the kairos, the timeliness of it's time for a nap or it's time to get up and look for food. That's one thing. But then also there is the chronological time, the sheer quantity and number, the measure of our lives. And as soon as we're thinking of things in that light, then of course, it's not long before we ask ourselves, what are we doing with our time? And a third of our lives we spend asleep. So... This conversation orbits some increasingly pressing questions about why we sleep at all. Can we defeat sleep? Can we unlock that one full third of our lives we spend unconscious? And if we can, should we? Get ready for a stimulating and rigorous conversation about the nature of time in the body. One that left me with more questions than I had going in. Left me wanting more. But before we get into that, Future Fossils is a crowd-sponsored show. I have a page at Patreon slash Michael Garfield where you can, for the price of a coffee or a sandwich every month, score yourself a bunch of unique and exclusive supplementary content to this show. Additional writing and audio recordings including the music that you're listening to right now, actually, which is from a show I played in Australia while I was on tour back in February. And that album is entirely free to Patreon supporters. Also, very soon, I'll have some coloring book pages posted up there for you doodlers. My enduring timeless love and thanks to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. But of course, there are other cheaper ways you can help this podcast get into the ears of the people who appreciate it and the people who would appreciate it. Because after all, this entire project is framed as a service to posterity and the benefit of all sentient beings. One of those ways is by getting onto iTunes and leaving a quick review. Even outright trolling helps due to the Streisand effect. No press is bad press, friends. So if you can take a moment and let people know how this show has abused your ears and ruined your week, then please do so. I thank you for it. Helps me keep this show ad-free because God knows we all have enough of that. Anyway, here we go, folks. My chat with science journalist Jessa Gamble. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks for listening.
Well, cool. Thanks for taking the time to join me on the show. Yeah, I've been following Last Word on Nothing at a distance oh, yeah. for a while. I, I haven't been keeping excellent track of it, but w- when I found it, I was really pleased to to note that there's this uh, renegade science writing out there like this. And yeah, there aren't too many people who actually sort of go to the site on a regular basis just to read the content. They tend to come in through sort of various links, but I can only hope that seeing that it's the last word on nothing thing, you know, maybe that's why part of the reason they're clicking on the link or something. Mm. Yeah, well, so I think I explained this to you in the email, but the reason that I'm excited to have you on the show is that this is a show that explores time from every available angle. And yes. given given that you have spent so much of your science career investigating time and temporality, it felt like you're just a totally perfect guest. Because <laughs> we haven't, one of the things that we haven't done on this show yet is get into temporality in the body and biological right. rhythms and circadian cycles and, you know, the, the varying ways that different organisms handle the issue of rhythmicity. So, mm-hmm. uh, what got you into this study in the first place? Uh, well, I was in university uh, taking behavioral neuroscience, sort of working in a lab with rats and so on. And uh, one of the experiments uh, had to do with circadian rhythms. And it was, you know, when you see it, the the the, the sort of the graph. So it's hard to explain a graph as like really exciting, but it, it actually <laughs> is like the the eeriest thing. If you see these free running rats who are in a constant light environment, and yet somehow they know exactly when to get up every day, and yet it just slips just a tiny, you know, just a few minutes every day toward a later timetable. It's just like this hidden force, and I just ever after that, I just wanted to kind of you know, stop people in the street and tell them that this was this was something that affects all of us and that is driving a lot of us. Uh, and we just have no conscious access to it. Mm. Yeah, that's it reminds me not to, I don't know, dumb this down. But it reminds me I'm a big fan of the, the show Northern Exposure. Okay, uh, which again, dates me uh, temporarily. Um, <laughs> there's an episode where the doctor Joel Fleischman who is unaccustomed to living in Alaska goes through his his first Alaskan summer and there's mm-hmm. you know goes through the the month plus of northern Alaskan 24-hour sunlight and goes totally manic and insane and I'm everyone so else glad show, that that was yeah. represented because it's funny because people know about seasonal affective disorder in terms of depression in the winter but there is this little known kind of flip side of it which is that if you are if you have sort of the the propensity for bipolar these sorts of arctic summers can really trigger manic episodes and it, and even in sort of regular you know people who don't suffer from these problems you really do have the sense that it's it's never quite bedtime yeah, yeah. So that that notion, and and I and I also that episode, they go through this whole thing where they're like, "Boy, you're gonna crash. You're gonna crash hard." So you know, everyone in the town who's lived there for a while is warning him that he needs to deliberately try and reintroduce a diurnal 
rhythm into his life and wear eye masks and stuff so that he can get proper sleep. But he's like, no, this is the most productive I've ever been. He's just like sitting in the gym, like shooting three pointers. And then of course, at the end of the, you know, the, the, the tragic comic finale of it is that, you know, the body doesn't actually sustain that. Right. So, right. so what happened, what happened to the rats just out of curiosity? Oh, well, I mean, they didn't meet a, Good end. Uh, yeah. No lab rats do, I'm afraid. They all get, they, you call it sacrificed, but yeah. yeah. This is one of the reasons that I left science and went into writing about science, because it is sort of a morally deflating uh, experience to work with animals. And in this case, it was a, a University of Toronto. It was in this sub-basement, like, secret lab that nobody talked about and there's cockroaches everywhere and you couldn't kill them because the red burmese jungle fowl in the corner who were like the sort of the wild type of the chicken that people were experimenting on they actually ate those cockroaches so they was part of the ecosystem so you couldn't put any like chemicals down so you would open the door to the lab and it was you just turn on the light and all these cockroaches like scuttle for cover and it was just so depressing and then you have to kill rats and that just tops it off you're not the only person i know that left the laboratory environment because of rat killing but i'm i guess this is a total tangent but i'm confused as to i've never heard of a lab where the cockroaches living in the building were food intentionally food for the lab and is that just a cheap department decision i mean it's it's not like they were sort of swept up and put in a dish they just happened to be you know they would peck them off the floor they would you know Mm. it wasn't an official i mean maybe it was a confound in the study because actually they were you know the food was not an exact measurement yeah definitely Uh, yeah it is i mean and this is a tangent for me too, but the, so the way that you have to kill rats in order to preserve their brain intact to check that you've damaged the right part of the brain to check what the brain does, it feels almost ritualistic. It's like this, you sort of have to pickle them alive and it's really just gross. And I, but I am interested in the results of this work, which is the, you know, uh, why I feel conflicted about that. Totally. So you you had your moral crisis at the same time yeah. that you discovered this extraordinary thing about there being a, a hidden rhythmicity underlying our relationship to sunlight. And then you went directly into writing your book on this or where did No. It- so that about 10 years later, I started the book. So in between that, I went up to live in the Arctic. And I discovered sort of the cultural aspect of this, which was, as you mentioned, you know, the sort of the traditional societies up in the Arctic are highly seasonal. And yet, as Westerners, we've sort of like imported our year round nine to five schedule on the work day there, which makes no sense at all. So in the winter, you're just dragging yourself to work and feeling so lazy and like just hating yourself. And then in the summer, you know, the seven year olds are booting around on bikes around town at three in the morning, you know, it's just, (laughs) um, it doesn't correspond to sort of the artificial society that we've, that we've sort of exported from Europe. So that element of it kind of mapped on to my understanding of the biological rhythms. And I thought maybe I I sort of have something to say about this. Mm. Again, I I love 
giving uh, cultural reference points for people. Uh, I'm sure that you have seen the the, uh, the vampire graphic novel Thirty Days of Night. Was there a movie of there that? There was. It was a Barrow, Alaska. Josh Hartnett. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that, that whole notion. It's like why hasn't anyone explored that? Um, and then again, the other side of that is Insomnia, which was a Swedish film that they they made into an, an American translation with. Was it Stellan Skarsgård and Robin Williams as a, a villain? And they're exploring the influence of 24-hour sunlight on the the like film noir on the detective story and how the detective is like losing his mind in the process of what is a film noir when there's when you don't have night at all. Um, yes. But anyway, so it is a very interesting trope uh, that seems to come up again and again and. So one of the things that you discuss, I want to post some some links in the show notes to some of to your TED talk, as well as to your uh, your article in the Atlantic and some other stuff. So some of the things that you discuss in that material is how different organisms handle this differently. And so we have like an, an evolutionary tree where you can see relationships between organisms and explore them in the way that these different biochemical systems have come online at different points in evolutionary history. I wonder if you would speak to that and and where temporality or you know where these circadian rhythms emerge for us at different points in evolutionary history and, and yeah. why. So they emerge very early because it's a huge advantage to be able to anticipate food, for example, that happens every day at a regular time. It's uh, it's good to be able to anticipate predators and to make to make that such a regular thing that you don't, if it's a cloudy day, you don't like forget to get up <laughs> just because it's not light. You know, you don't, if you're just responding to si- sunlight, then you're at a disadvantage to like the little, you know, squirrel who's already prepared. <laughs> So almost all of life has this rhythmicity and it's because of the rotation of the earth, right? We just, life on earth is rhythmic because we're on this rotating planet. And so it really is one of our deepest connections to like, not to be all woo about it, but like to the universe that that we're sort of like, if we didn't already accept that the world was spherical and turns on an axis, then this should convince us of that, um, because it's right ingrained in our biology. Um, and so, so that came very early. But the recognition in medicine, let's say, that there is this fourth dimension to our nature, that we are not only organized spatially, so we have organs that do particular things within the body and systems that, you know, are organized, but we also are organized temporarily. So we're different creatures at night than we are in the daytime. And we're undergoing totally different processes and our abilities are different at different times of day. You know, world records are broken at different times of day um, and, and so on. So that's something that is interesting. So, I mean, this TED Talk that you mentioned, <laughs> yeah. so this was given quite a while ago, and it was, at that time, I was interested in looking at the ancestral sleep cycle of humans. So, this whole idea of, you know, going to sleep for eight hours a night in this consolidated period, sort of on a raised platform in a room with four walls, you know, uh, 
this eight-hour kind of recommendation by doctors. This is all a very modern ph phenomenon, and it's since the sort of advent of artificial light. But before that, we had a totally different rhythm, which was fascinating for me to discover. So we took sort of a like an anti-nap in the middle of the night, uh, which was different in quality from any of our waking time today. It was very sort of meditative and kind of dreamlike and relaxed and sort of, you know, people would sort of have sex then or they would pray or they would visit, you know, family and stuff. And it was like this other scheduled interlude that we don't have. And so... This was fascinating to me, and I gave a TED Talk about it. But just, you know, to warn any viewers who do go to clear, like, <laughs> I'm not advocating for a return to this to this schedule, because a lot of people, I think, have taken that from it. I'm actually kind of a sci-fi kid, and I'm interested in how we can manipulate our cycles and, like, eliminate sleep or, you know, go in totally radical directions. So that's are just you a, uh, Are you a subscriber to Modafinil? And like other military stimulants, <laughs> that's a... So, modafinil is like a giant letdown. I don't know. There was a, such a hype about it in 2005, five, six yeah. kind of thing. They're like, oh, this is the new generation of eugerokes. Uh, but um, it, it's since sort of been shown to be no more effective really than caffeine. It's just that it has a longer half-life and so on. I mean, it's okay. It's kind of a cognitive enhancer. It's sort of interesting, but um, I don't think it's the answer. I think the answer is to replace sleep rather than delay it and hmm. to find out what the brain actually needs to get done, which we're starting to know now, and to like do that in a shorter time. Well, okay, so... Before we get on to that, because I think getting into the actual physical basis for sleep and why human beings seem to need so much of it is a very interesting line of investigation and why also why certain people need less than mm. other people. You have these bastards, sleepless fuckers, but, um, <laughs> but you know, of course that's just me importing the cultural values of my own hyperproductive North American 21st century nonsense onto this, my, my Protestant values colonializing my body in some respects. Right. Uh, but before we, we get into that and then also I'm, I'm curious to explore Oh, there's so many ways to take this. But first, like this issue of the first sleep and the second sleep. And then, yes. you know, your, your book, Siesta and the Midnight Sun. So you, there's a, a sort of a yin-yang going on here where we have the anti-nap in the middle of the night and then the nap in the middle of the day. And it seems like that's sort of the wormhole through which we can address the related issue of how other animals have a completely different structure to their their cycle the nocturnal animals and okay yeah and this issue and also like deep sea creatures and how they don't have any light at all down in the very pelagic that depths of it true. you know no, so it's literally only occurring to me now that i don't know what they do in terms of circadian rhythms i'm like the so-called expert i really don't i that's well because you know like the, you've got the submarine people right and the sub submarine watches have been rolling on an, an 18 hour cycle for like since the beginning of the submarine so it's it's and it seems like that was you know people found a, a sort of a healthy stride with that and when I moved yeah. down to Texas from Colorado a couple of years ago, 
I realized that. Where it, are you in Texas? In, in Austin, Texas. Oh, okay. okay. And in you know in the hill country around Austin and really all over Texas and and Mexico and the American Southwest, there's a lot of desert creatures that, for obvious reasons, are not going to do so well in the heat of the day. And so they have adapted this completely opposite sleep schedule. So I'm curious, you know, what you having not read your book, full disclosure. No, no, it's I don't. So nocturnality is is not that complex to sort of implement. And so mammals are our big innovation was being nocturnal. So we have that in our evolutionary history. Uh, be having the ability to re, uh, to um, regulate our own temperature allowed us to go into that niche, right, to colonize the night. And that was a big thing for animals. And then human sort of like retrograde sort of evolved (laughs) toward diurnal uh, rhythms again. So we sort of went there and we went back, but we sort of still have that in us. In terms of siesta and so on, there's some biological basis that has been shown. There's a sort of a dip in our energy levels. It's called postprandial, which means like after a meal or after lunch. But actually it happens whether you eat or not. So there's, uh, there's some basis for that. There are also things that arctic species do to change their rhythm so caribou put like a filter on their eyes during the summer so that they <laughs> don't they don't like see the the spectrum of light that's going to um inhibit their melatonin and so they're going they, like they basically feed their rhythms are determined by eating instead of by sunlight because the sunlight is no longer use, useful mm. as a cue Huh. And that is that a year-round thing, or is that a seasonal filter? Seasonal. That's a seasonal filter, and then they go back to being like the rest of us. Damn. They, they turn, I think their eyes turn yellow, and then they go back to blue. Whoa. <laughs> so, so blue blockers, like, you, you get into this, for anyone who's done any kind of long highway driving, you know, and you can kind of avoid road hypnosis through, you know, wearing the blue blocking like, aviation lenses. Uh, my mom right. was big on that so okay and then man i i'm trying not to make this just a list of questions that i have for you but when you bring up the fact that we have this slightly more than 24 hour cycle Mm. i guess my question is why isn't it precisely 24 hours Hour, or like, you know, the Earth's, the Earth's rotation isn't precisely 24 hours, but yeah. why isn't it precisely matched to the Earth's rotation in the first place? Like, right. we've, been doing, we've been at this so, for over 4 billion years. What the hell? Uh, yeah. And I mean, the question of why is always a little bit tricky with evolution because there is ultimately there is sort of is no why. There is only adapting. But as you say, you're adapting to something that, you know, is a precise time period. So... What we know about that is that we're able to calibrate our clocks based on that little bit of overlap. There are also individual differences in terms of the lengths of our circadian cycle. So if you are a late person, that means your circadian cycle is longer, your your free running cycle, uh, than a morning person's would be. And it's so the as soon as uh, the sun sort of hits the back of your eye, then that message travels to the master clock in your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and that sort of orchestrates all the timing in your body. And it's like it 
communicates with the lesser clocks in the different organs and so on. So, yeah, you kind of need some of your time periods to overlap with light or dark so that you can, it's always um, a delicate balance. It's maybe not the ideal way to set it up if you were doing it from scratch, but biology never is. Well, then again, I guess the Earth's rotation has also shifted slightly over the the years. I mean, we've been with that tidal lock with the moon and the moon's orbit has its uh, distance from the Earth has changed over the years. So it might be that we're we're like constantly having to renegotiate around chemical systems that evolved within a different context than the, the context that currently exists, right? Yeah, that's true. I, and I don't know how much of an effect that had on uh, on the circadian rhythms. I mean, it, it's sort of a difference of minutes, is it not? Mm. Is it? Yeah, I think. There's a, there's a whole question in astrobiology as to what sort of rhythms aliens will have, because obviously the rotation of their uh, cycles will be matched to the rotation of those planets. And it's interesting because you can, you can sort of engineer rats and other animals that have different cycle lengths and really their home planet is like somewhere out there rotating mm. at that frequency that's kind of sad it it's is like, you're making like little aliens we've, we've made a rat for another world that yeah. it's, it's got that uh there's actually what was that an american tale where these it's that romantic like sitting under the stars knowing she's out there somewhere um <laughs> But it does lead. Nobody understands my rhythms. <laughs> yeah, it does lead directly into the next thing, which is I was going to ask you about that kind of research into engineering different rhythms because we're coming up on you know this kind of precipitous moment in human history where we're going to start sending people to other planets permanently, yes. mm-hmm. and those people like the what the Martian day is like twenty five minutes longer than Earth day. Yeah, right? it's like twenty four and a half. And so the the guys who were kind of uh, remotely operating the uh, Curiosity probes, they tried for a phase of that mission to actually live on Martian time. And there were people who were from the Harvard kind of circadian rhythms sort of crew were monitoring them to see if they ever adjusted and they never did. They just were slightly jet lagged at all times. Oh God. How is, but like, is that just because they're, they're actually leaving the building and going home and they're still subjecting there could be aspects themselves of that. to that? Yeah. Cause it's, they, they weren't in sort of like isolation chambers where the lights were only on at those times or anything like that. But mm. um, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's a form of shift work that is rotating. So uh, that's always, that's sort of notoriously the worst form of shift work as well as the kind that goes night, morning, afternoon, night, morning, afternoon, even though it's popular because every three days you get to see your family. Jeez. Kind of remind, I mean, it sounds like they're actually having a lot more trouble than the 18 hour submarine shift people because they're in this kind of controlled environment where they're exposed to, you know, a regular rhythmicity with lighting and everything. And that it might actually just, you know, maybe we don't even need to engineer Martian circadian rhythms. It sounds like we're, we're more or less flexible enough in our cycles that we can pull it off. We can, but your body notices. So if you're eating in the middle of the night, like in the middle of your internal night, 
it's really bad and you don't feel it, but it's, it's like, because that's when your, uh, you know, your liver sort of like shut down its protein production. So you just, you develop things like diabetes much quicker and things like that. Mm. I was just reading in the, I think it was New York Times, they were talking about, again, another tangent, but they were talking about the Russian cosmonauts on the International Space Station and the research that they had just done on salt intake. Yeah, they were were saying that uh, everything we know, I just tweeted this, uh, I'll send you a link. They were just saying everything we know about salt metabolism might be wrong because they were thinking that that, uh, salt actually creates more water in the body by increasing the production of glucocorticoid steroids and uh, metabolizing fats and muscle tissue in the body. And so the common understanding that people have that salt makes you thirsty actually has to do with a reaction from the tongue. And that they found over the length of this study that people eating large amounts of salt actually required uh, less of a water intake, but were hungrier because their body was breaking down fat and muscle tissue faster to produce water in order to balance out the salt. So they're, That they're, sounds like a really significant finding in terms of mechanism, which is always more interesting than sort of correlation. Right, but they were, but at the same time, they were saying, uh, "Don't OD on salt as a as a dietary measure, you know, in order to lose weight because of exactly what you're saying that this massive surge in glucocorticoids in the body can." overtax your liver and, and lead to pre-diabetic conditions and okay and that kind of stuff yeah but um let's roll it back <laughs> as it were let's go counterclockwise here and and get to the issue of sleep because we, we touched on this just a moment ago that we need to we wish we didn't and we're looking at people who are these like super performer low sleep people for some sort of indication of how we might be able to engineer interventions. So, I mean, could you get into that a little bit? And, and like, what's, on the one hand, you know, what science currently has to say about why we need sleep and then yeah. how we might be able to interrupt that, you mm-hmm. know, so that we can work in the Amazon warehouse for 24 hours a day. Yay! Well, okay. So, I mean, and that is definitely where people first go when they th- then you know when they hear oh we wouldn't need to sleep as much but of course like you could spend that time you know playing with your children or you know all of the quality time that you don't have in your current work schedule but uh, given the productivity kind of culture people assume that you would just spend that time either working or being forced to work um, but so okay so here is what we need to do when we're sleeping or what our brain needs to do as we go about our day and we learn things uh the connections between our neurons strengthen and that's what a memory is it's sort of a strong network of of neurons who are connected each to functionally connected so when one fires the one that it's connected to is more likely to pass the message on so this cannot continue indefinitely. You can't just get stronger and stronger neurons. And that's a problem that like neural networks face these, this problem too. Artificial intelligence is sort of like grappling with the same thing is that you 
end up with what's called catastrophic interference. You just like saturate the whole network and then you forget everything immediately. So this, it, it needs to be regulated, the strength of these neurons. So while, as you're sleeping, the brain is degrading the strength of the connections between your brain cells. Um, but the key is that it's sort of doing them more or less equally. It's protecting some uh, specifically, but I, on a relative level, you still have your memories pretty much. and But when you wake up, you're actually able to learn again because you are still flexible. Whereas when you're sleepy, the almost definition of being sleepy is you cannot really learn anymore. Mm. So sleep is really sort of a other things happen during sleep, but it, it really is a brain thing. And the brain has to be offline for that to happen. You can't be processing things from the environment at the same time. So can this be done in a shorter amount of time now that we know what we have to get done? This happens during slow wave sleep. We can see it happen. We can observe the connection, the synapses getting weaker. Um, yes, we can enhance this. Uh, we can enhance it actually through something as non-invasive as a tone regularly chirping in your ear. <laughs> and this is something that's like being developed right now. Philips Respironics is on it. Giulio Tononi at the University of Wisconsin is like actively developing this. Uh, and it would cut off, you know, let's say an hour of what do you, I mean, of course, the line is always, oh, we're doing this for people who have sleep problems or, you know, aging, cognitive, this and that. It's because they don't want to talk about human enhancement, but this is what right. it is. And to me, that's exciting. And to others, this is horrifying, but it it is what it is. So, um, <laughs> the conservatives, <laughs> there's no uh, undoing the transhumanism thing. It's, no, exactly. It's just gonna happen. And my friends in, not to cut you off, I'm really curious to hear what the rest is, but like my friends in Austin run this uh, conference called the Body Hacking Convention. And it's, we, we had uh, Trevor Goodman, the conference organizer on the show, uh, I think he was like episode 15. And he was saying a lot of this stuff, yeah, you have to cloak it in the medical language. And so a big part of the PR for this event is models who were born without an arm who are using the prosthetic arm or, you know, there's people who, this is a whole other subject, but, you know, the designer babies thing starts yeah. with, you know, a, a, a baby who's going to be born with a terminal condition and wouldn't you help that baby? But this is, this is the, uh, playbook for DARPA basically is, yeah. you know, how we, you know, it's, there's no, it doesn't seem like there's any separation ultimately between uh, necessity and like a, a cosmetic desire to transcend ourselves. Right. You know, so. Yeah. I mean, DARPA is such a funny animal. Like, I mean, I kind of wish there was a Canadian DARPA. I'm, a, I'm in Canada, but like, Carpa. you know, you look at it, you're like, you're just not sure if it's like from the genius part of DARPA or like the bullshit part. And it's just, they kind of blend into one another. There's no separating the, the blessing and the curse of the American visionary frontier spirit. That was beautifully put. It's just, I mean, it is, it's just not possible, you know, you you look at i mean i'm i'm really fascinated by the efforts that are being made to create like sense webs in natural ecosystems like in the great barrier reef for example to facilitate conservation projects but like i met a friend of 
these people have been trying to connect me to this guy who lives in LA and manages a hundred two million dollar portfolios for various DARPA research projects. And I asked him, I was like, so like, what do you, you know, what's one of some of the things you're working on? And he's like, well, one of them is preventing illegal fishing. Oh, well, how are you doing that? By tracking every boat in the world simultaneously and like measuring it, its water displacement so that we can calculate whether or not it has more than the legal amount of catch in its hull at any given time. It's wow. like you get into these these issues where it's like the only way that we can do any good is by doing something that up to the sort of contemporary sensibilities is unequivocally evil. And so, right. you know, a lot of this... Like deep surveillance type yeah, stuff. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is really, really tied into these profound ethical issues of, you know... I mean, I'm I'm not... I mean, I've got this Jurassic Park tattoo, but it's like... Hey. <laughs> it's not because... You're into de-extinction? I am into de-extinction, and I, as, as far as, you know, talking about screwing up the chronology. <laughs> but, <laughs> but also, it's not... The, the book Jurassic Park and the movie Jurassic Park kind of have two different messages or morals. And, like, the, the movie simp- oversimplifies things and says, oh, we're crossing a line here that we shouldn't cross. Whereas the book is just saying... Things are far, far, far more complex than we understand, and we have to be mindful of these unintended secondary interactions and, you know, the, the, uh, the fractal chaotic boundary between the known and unknown and move into these spaces with humility, which is often, right. you know, not where a lot of these, these research projects are coming from. But anyway... That's true. Although that can be overplayed. Like, for example, we have completely overhauled the, the way that our sort of reproductive systems work through birth control and nothing terrible happened. We just have smaller families. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes the awful consequences that are supposed to be punishment for, you know, acting like you're a god... Mm. don't actually happen. I think the God is like a relative, it's a horizon. It's not a fixed point. That, right. that, this notion that we're turning into gods and that we're going to get to this technological singularity. Yes. Uh, it's like, well, we already, we've, we've crossed that point at like 50 different times in earth history. You know, multicellularity was a technological singularity. Photosynthesis and glycolysis was a technological singularity. Written language, and before that, even spoken language was a technological singularity. So it's it's good to keep that shit in perspective. Right. Anyway, so hacking sleep. Where are we with that? I mean, we're not where we would be if we had decided to do it, to really just go for it, uh, which we haven't. What we've decided to do is look at the fact that we're all sleep deprived, that it's making us unhealthy, that it's making us, you know, accident prone, that it is making us stupider because sleep is the most effective cognitive enhancer that we know about the fact that we're sleep deprived is then met with a whole slew of people who say well so we need to sleep more this is the solution whatever you were doing for that last night you know the last hour of the evening last night that you thought was so important actually you should have been sleeping so just like that's your fault but there's <laughs> but there are other things that we could be doing like you know seeing if we can cut down on our actual need for sleep so that we can all do the things we'd like to do more of and uh, it's interesting when you talk to people about 
being able to extend your waking lifespan, because this is really an issue of sort of the low-hanging fruit in the longevity debate, I think. Because, you know, if you don't need to do it, then all of a sudden the natural lifespan is waking lifespan is the equivalent of sort of a 150-year-old or something. So that would be pretty rad, in my opinion. But a lot of people, it's almost like a psychological defense mechanism that they think, oh, I would get so bored, you know, in the middle of the night (laughs) with nothing to do. Whereas there's other people, they have enough goals for like seven different lifetimes. And so they know exactly what they would do with that time. And I've started sort of categorizing people by their response to this idea (laughs) and like how much they long for oblivion <laughs> ooh, ooh, that's that's almost like you're getting into the Freudian death drive there. That, yeah. There's this panic. There's just this flash of panic. I wish I could take a picture, just like, like you know, <laughs> when you say it, and then uh, this, they're staring into the void when they think about this possibility. To sleep, perhaps to dream. Did you read Douglas Rushkoff's book, Present Shock? I did not. Oh, highly recommended. Did he, I, read it he, I was reading it in New York in 2013, and it was such a perfect time to read it because it, he was talking about the way that the city's architecture is being optimized for the efficient communication of stock prices and like, yes. and, and high frequency algorithmic trading. And the flash of, boys kind of thing. Yeah, it's a very much a it's a very much a Kronos rather than Kairos kind of a conversation. But one of the theses of his book is that we can reconcile this ultra fast beyond human comprehension digital time that we're now all embedded in with the organic rhythms of the human body if we take into account the way that those organic rhythms show up for us in the quality of our human experience. And he points to this particular research I just found it, and I'll post this in the show notes also, that the lunar cycles are, the the four weeks of the month are associated with spikes in four different neurotransmitters. So like the week of the full moon, it's acetylcholine. And then the next week, it's serotonin. And then the next week, it's dopamine. And then the last week, it's norepinephrine. Currently under our urban environment? Yeah, yeah. It seems like it has to do with tidal influence i think and so he lives in new york and so he said that what he did to experiment with this was each of these neurotransmitters is uh, you know associated with a particular kind of human experience and a preference for certain types of activity so he started to reorganize his entire month around the lunar cycle and these, yes. tr- these neurotransmitters and found that his word count writing this book went up 40%. When he, Shut up. No, he, he limited himself to writing only one week a month. And then he spent one week on research and he spent one week on networking. And then he spent one week on, I, I forget, like physical activity or just getting out and playing with his kids or something. And that his productivity had a huge spike so that there's this intersection where, and I feel like this is almost an advertisement for your work in this area also, that the better we understand these things that we have been trying to push out of the human story for the last couple hundred years, I mean, certainly since the invention of artificial light, that the more we, and and like you were saying about, about the nine to five day above the Arctic Circle, that 
as we understand these rhythms better, not just on a daily, but on a, you know, a monthly and possibly an, you know, annual basis. And I've seen a little bit of research suggesting there's a hormonal cycle associated with solar activity and all this stuff. So that, you know, the more we understand these sort of shells of chronological influence on us, that there's actually a selling point there to the industrial system, you know, that, you know, we can make the case that, Hey, sleep is good. But I think you made this point in your Atlantic article. It's been a couple of weeks since I read it, but not all sleep is created equal. And that like, you're going to get better sleep at certain times. And it's it's actually more useful to sleep in alignment with certain cycles. And I don't know. Thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) Thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Um, yeah, I, I think it's not hard to sell, really. It's, um, it's sort of in line with, well, I know, because, you know, Adidas looks to me for advice on how to market stuff. Like, it's, it's sort of, you know, the people who approach you tell you, really, who's going to be interested in this stuff. And um, there is a lot of interest in sort of enhancing performance and optimizing this and that. And and that's really what the application tends to be. Now, what you choose to enhance is, is the sort of, is the other question, which science cannot tell you. But... Um, yeah, it's it's not bad news really for anyone. It's just things that you can do, you can sort of like information you can use. So I what- hate to be sort of, um, you know, everyone wants very prescriptive kind of stuff. And I'm, I, I, you know, I'm interested in understanding, but I really can't tell people how to sleep. But they want me to. Well, that's, that's very in keeping with, you know, the, the whole publication that you had it's like science is the the first word on everything and the last word on nothing right it's like i'm i'm gonna raise a bunch of interesting questions i'm not gonna give you any easy answers necessarily but i think that's that's very balanced as far as you know archetypal solar lunar is concerned so i mean is this is this work still occupying you predominantly i mean this inquiries into the biology of time or or what's taking up your attention right now i mean so i'm a i'm a journalist a freelance journalist and so i get sent on all kinds of missions everywhere i'm sort of in the stage of my career where i don't i've hardly ever pitched stuff um so what comes to me is whatever a magazine is looking for which is kind of interesting but it you know stuff that i would never think of um but yeah i sort of feel like i want to follow up the book that i wrote really in 2011 is when it came out so it's a long time ago now with a little bit you know if i can look at the bookends of of sapiens versus homo deus mm-hmm. that Yuval Hariri did. It's like on a totally different scale of competence and understanding (laughs) my my work. I could look into the future of sleep and maybe the sort of the perhaps the end of sleep, look into possibilities that we could actually get to a place where we are doing sort of aerial refueling in terms of um, getting what we need while we're awake. so not having to sleep and so on. Have you looked at all into the the effects of meditation on this? Because I know, I mean, just, you know, anecdotally, I know from a number of people, long-term 
experienced meditators, their their sleep cycles have changed profoundly over the yeah. course of their their practice. You know, and you get to a point where you have cultivated a you know maybe 30 years into your practice you're not even dreaming anymore you and and you don't really phenomenologically they they report that they're not even really ever truly sleeping that the body goes to sleep but the awareness that part of the brain that is aware remains Mm. online and watches the body go to sleep and watches the body wake up like ken wilber for example talks about this in a lot of his books and he says when he was in peak performance as a meditator, that he would be sleeping, you know, three or four hours a night, but that the rest that he was getting was vastly better than the rest that he was getting when he was sleeping eight hours a night as an untrained meditator. So there's a guy at Oxford called Vlad Vyazovsky, and he has looked, for example, at um, running activity. So if you are running for a long space of time, you would think that that would be tiring, but people report feeling sort of refreshed after it. So what's going on? And you, lo and behold, you don't actually have to sleep as much if you've done this sort of like monotonous sort of meditative activity for a long stretch of time. Um, so, and that kind of speaks to the fact that sleep is actually kind of a localized thing in the brain. And if you if you learn some new thing with your left arm one day, some skill, then that part of the brain that controls that left arm will sleep more. It was sort of see a lot more slow wave activity. Oh, uh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's sort of like, um, and even if you really tire it out, it'll do that while you're awake you'll have and it's not even a micro sleep like your eyes are open and whatever but your that part of the brain will just go to sleep for little brief snippets because it's that's what it needs to do to renormalize it the strength of its connections so um i have no doubt that something like meditation could actually get that job done uh, during the waking hours a little bit and or make it more efficient or you know change it in some way That kind of reminds me of the thing with uh, aquatic mammals and having that hemispheric sleep where half the brain's asleep at a time. Yeah. Well, what do you... What do you know so about I don't that? know too much about that. I think the deal there is that you have a lot more duplication among the hemispheres, so that you, you know, you essentially sort of have two kind of breathing centers and two two of all the essential things, but. I, I think that's getting slightly outside of where I'm comfortable commenting mm. on because I would just be making it up. So that's more of a the dolphin is, is more of like a, a three legged potato sack race of a kind of a. All right, all right. Hmm. Yeah. So if it were up to you, mm. you know, it sounds like you're pretty much on the line with let's get rid of sleep. Is that accurate? I would like to give future generations that option, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm in favor of personal choice, mm. but I think if sleep could be an activity that you could choose to do or not, or you could keep on doing this you know, groundbreaking seminal piece of masterpiece of work that you like really it's not even sleep it's fatigue that i'm annoyed with i I don't want to be like just sort of like not on my game in the evening and just 
slowly lose competence. That's just, it's very irritating to me. I want to get rid of them again. <laughs> what about dreaming, though? I mean, it seems, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I remember uh, David Eagleman gave his seminar at Long Now Foundation in the Bay, Sausalito, California. And there, he discussed some of the research into the issue of dreaming and whether it actually serves a unique function or whether it's sort of a byproduct of the sleeping brain that it has more to do with this cascade of neural firing that occurs in the brain when it's been detached from external inputs. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, you don't see dreaming or something. You don't see what looks like the neural correlates of dreaming showing up before mammals. Right. I mean, am I, I, I believe that you don't see dreaming in like basal reptiles, for example. So that would suggest that there's something else going on there. So the, there are several different explanations, sort of REM sleep explanations that have been posited. And there's not really more evidence for one than for another. But the one that I like uh, has ex- been explained to be thus. As you're going through the process of sleep and you have you start off with a whole bunch of slow wave sleep, which is the regenerative kind of uh, restful kind of sleep, and then increasingly toward the morning, you have longer and longer episodes of REM sleep. And it may be that it is simulating wakefulness in order to test whether you're done sleeping or not. <laughs> See if you're ready to wake up. Interesting. I had a dream last night that ended where I was nearly crushed by a a crashing plane, which I took (laughs) as the alarm clock. It was like very clear. It was like, that's the end of... Because it came around once and almost crashed. And it was like, no, I, I... I want to stay in this and see what happens. And then it came around again. I was like, okay, time to get up. So that would seem to confirm or lend, not confirm, but lend credence to that particular notion. Are we ready to wake up? That sounds horrifying. I hope it doesn't happen to you again. (laughs) It's actually not the worst dream ever. Well, oh gosh, this has been fascinating. I tend to end the episodes with a little bit of long-term totally armchair off the chain speculation. So I guess my, my invitation to you at this point would be, I like framing this podcast in terms of one, it being a time capsule for the conveyance of cultural information to the distant future that people are going to want to know in another hundred years what it was like to be alive at this time before we were recording everything back when we were still sleeping. But then the other part is is to encourage asking the questions about or from the future. So, I mean, you can kind of take this whichever way you want. It's kind of a two-part thing. One would be like, what questions would you have for these people in mm-hmm. in whatever kind of distant or near future frame of reference that you would pick and then what message would you hope to leave for them from Wednesday May 10th 2017 at 3 p.m. central time uh-huh. well i mean that's a tough one so exactly. i think that what we you know the 
the time capsule is being recorded at a time in which we haven't really figured out what we're doing as a species, but we know that we sort of don't like things that hurt and we do like things that feel good. And we're sort of driven by this kind of general framework. But what we have trouble with is things that we don't consciously experience at all, such as sleep, and whether that could be detracting from our overall experience, our overall sort of the the opportunity cost of that might be quite high. And so what I would sort of encourage people to do if they're zooming out on on the problem or question of sleep is to think about quality of life, what makes life great, and maybe take a page from the sort of actuarial tables which adjust for things like disability, years spent with crippling diseases and so on. And surely being unconscious has to be the most debilitating of all states. And if we're spending, as humanity, you know, a third of our lives in this state, could this be be different and would we would some people maybe want it to be different and should we put some effort into looking into this and I, my my answer would be yes hmm. well then i guess here's to whether it is awake or asleep a more lucid dream of our human potential yeah Cheers to that. Cheers to that. Jessa Gamble, thank you so much for being on Future Fossils. Thank you. Let's do this again. Yeah, I'm, I'm up for it. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Future Fossils and leave us a review. It really helps us get these conversations into the ears of other people who will benefit from them. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Michael Garfield. Be good to yourselves and have a beautiful century.